Hey, I'm Alex. And I'm Steph. And this is Not Today. So keeping you on your toes. Yep. You Jeez. thought you knew what you were going to hear when you clicked play, but you didn't, did you? <laughs> Stupid. How many people just like don't know what life is anymore? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? What's up? Not much. Um, we're waiting for a friend to come in. True. It's going to be a good weekend. Very true. Uh, we did get some Sherry Papini updates from a number of people who follow us on Instagram. Tell me about it. Well, what was the husband's name? Keith. Keith. Keith finally divorced her formally. Ah, okay. That's that's positive news, I think, for Keith. You know, Not maybe for he can move on. Yeah. Well, yeah. It seems like they weren't right for each other. It right? seems to be that, yes. And some other extenuating circumstances. Right. But God, I would not want to be a part of that custody battle. Yeah, that sounds unfun. But I'm glad that Keith is moving forward. Power mm-hmm. to him and his family and his children, you know? Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's let's just jump into the story. We don't think we have anything else to really talk about. Mm-mm. And this week, we're talking about a bridge collapse. Dun, yeah. dun. Who's driving on a bridge currently right now? Yeah, I was actually thinking that. I was like, I wonder if anyone listening right now is going to be driving on a bridge. And if you are, I extend my sincerest apologies because I would not want to be driving on a bridge right now. Yeah, no. Um, But yeah, that's what we're talking about. And this story takes place in Minneapolis. Okay. So there are tons of bridges going over the Mississippi in Minneapolis, every mile or two, there's another bridge. And the I-35W Mississippi River Bridge was an eight-lane steel truss arch bridge that carried Interstate 35W across the Mississippi River one half mile, or 875 meters, downstream from the St. Anthony's Falls in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In case you were wondering, this bridge opened in 1967 and was Minnesota's third busiest carrying 140,000 vehicles daily. And the people, yeah, the people that were talking about this bridge in, you know, the research that I did said that people would use this bridge every single day, multiple times a day. It was one of the, the most central bridges connecting two parts of Minneapolis together. So they were constantly driving over this bridge. Which right. sucks. Also, I didn't realize that the Mississippi River goes up to Minnesota. <laughs> I, guess I thought it was I didn't too either. far north. Right. Yeah. You learn something well, I, new every day. You know, I'm not that smart, let's be honest. <laughs> when it all comes down to it, I'm kind of dumb. So <laughs> Let's move past that. <laughs> Good. So our story is taking place on August 1st, 2007. And it was the end of the workday, somewhere around 5.30, 6 p.m., Lindsay Walls was on her way home from her job where she worked with young people who lived in a group home, and that summer, the bridge was under construction. So on her way home, she thought about what time of day it was and how the traffic was most likely not going to be great going over the bridge. She had actually debated taking a different route that day to avoid the construction and traffic, but on her drive where she had the opportunity to veer off of that course and get off at an exit to go through the city, 
she was daydreaming and missed the exit. Oh my god. I know someone that daydreams <laughs> while they drive. Well, um, okay. Didn't have to come for me on that one. I was going to come for myself, but yeah, I, I, this would have been me. Yeah. 100%. Driving with Alex, or like being the passenger in Alex's car, even if you have the GPS going, telling you where to turn, you have to be like, hey, turn here. <laughs> you have to have like two levels of <laughs> turning. Hey. 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 I'm neurodivergent. I have oh, right. ADHD. I'm so sorry. Possibly. Undiagnosed, but. Sure. My hypothesis. <laughs> my hypothesis. But like you start talking about something like crazy, mm-hmm. I'm going to miss the left on La Cienega. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's all it's just good. not that important. It just made me giggle because I <laughs> pictured you missing your, your exit. And I was like, yeah, I have it, been there many times. Yeah. yeah. So just like everyone else, she was crawling along in traffic toward the bridge. And once she reached the last exit before the bridge, her mind told her to take the exit. But she was in bumper-to-bumper traffic and in the left-hand lane. So she decided to just stick it out. That way she didn't have to merge all the way across the highway. So two times her gut was like, hey, babe, don't get on the bridge, which is a little spooky. But anyway, Gary Babineau was also on his way home from work as a construction worker, and he was excited to make it home that day since he had been traveling. So he was looking forward to seeing his fiance. They were expecting a baby soon, and they were in the process of looking for a house. So they were just incredibly happy, and he was really looking forward to it. It was super hot that day, somewhere around 90 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So before Gary got into his car, he took off his shirt, took out his wallet and cell phone out of his pockets and put them on the center console of his truck for what should have just been a 20 minute drive home. He had his windows down and he was listening to music and made his way into Minneapolis and to the bridge. This bridge is eight lanes of constant traffic all day. But this day was worse since there was construction going on on the bridge. So there were about two lanes of traffic on either side that were closed, which was making the traffic move like at a snail's pace. At around 6 p.m., Gary was just getting onto the bridge and could see the construction going on. He was moving maybe 10 miles per hour. As he was sitting in traffic, he started to hear this large rumbling noise that he described like a train going over the bridge. He said it was extremely difficult to comprehend what was happening that quickly, but only a moment later, the ground completely came out from underneath all of the cars and they were free falling. The bridge was actively collapsing. The main deck portion of the 35W bridge with more than 100 occupied vehicles and construction workers collapsed suddenly into the Mississippi below. 1,000 feet of the nearly 2,000-foot-long eight-lane bridge had fallen away, and 400 feet fell into the 15-foot-deep water below. A thousand, half the bridge? Yes. Yeah. A thousand feet Mm -hmm. of concrete? Yes. Went into the Mississippi? Correct. And it was more than a football field to land? Uh Uh-huh. Holy fuck. And then it went straight into the Mississippi? Insane. Gary said he could see out of his windshield the bridge falling in front of him along with all the other cars around him free-falling to the water below. There was nothing he could do. Thankfully for Gary, his car landed not completely in the water. It was half in the water but half on the fallen bridge deck. And after landing, he could barely see anything. The dust cloud around the cars was 
intense, but he knew that now he couldn't see over the other half of the bridge as he once could because, you know, he's below it. Yeah, that small fact. Yeah, there was actually a biker that was near the bridge when it collapsed, and he said that the cloud of dust that came at him and then engulfed him was similar to that of, like, the dust cloud in 9-11. Wow. He was at 9-11, too? Well, (laughs) okay. (laughs) No, he was not. But you know the dust cloud that happened that people, that was, like, literally just, like, engulfing people? Yeah. That he said it was like that. It was like a wall of dark dust and, and like, dirt. That's insane. Like, I thought he was at both events, though. I I don't think so. (laughs) I I would bet no. What shit luck. Seriously. As I'm sure you could imagine, people were screaming everywhere, and he recalled it was like the scene out of a horror movie, but it was real. After a moment of sitting in his truck trying to take in what was going on, he started to unbuckle and get out of his car, but as he was about to get out, he could hear tire screeching coming from above him. And as he opened his door, he heard around five or six cars come crashing down to where he was. The bridge was at such an incline that cars above were sliding off of it and toward him and off the bridge. And as terrible as that sounds... Lindsay Walls was way worse off with where she was right before the collapse because her car was almost directly in the center of the bridge. And as she reached the center in this bumper-to-bumper traffic, she heard a beam snap. And she said it was a very distinct sound of metal snapping. And then the next thing she knew, she was in an immediate freefall to the water below. She said she doesn't remember the impact with the water, but she remembers hitting the bottom of the river. The bottom of the river? Yes, the Mississippi River. How deep is it? Do you 15 know? feet. Just straight down? Yes. Is it just me? Or when you go over a bridge, do you do you think about that happening? Not every time, but yeah. Like, sometimes I think about it. I feel like every almost every time I go over a bridge, I'm like, I'm going to be at the bottom of this river. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or I just think about, like, what I would do mm. in my head where I'm like, oh, you got to roll down the windows because the electricity is going to die. And you got to smash it and you got to un- unbuckle your window or you got to unbuckle your seatbelt and swim out. And, uh, like, it's just all this shit that goes through my head because I have anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've. I've definitely thought about what I would do. Like, I, I remember, like, Mythbusters uh-huh. doing this whole scenario. Like, oh, what do you do? Do you, like, let the water come in and then open the door because the pressure equalizes? Oh, does it? Yeah. If there's I think water when in you, the car? If you don't let the water fill up, you, like, won't be able to open your door because there'll just be too much pressure because the water is pushing right. it in. Um, oh, I guess that makes so sense. So, like, I feel would... like the first thing would be you get your seatbelt off. Uh-huh. And then you have to, like, literally wait until your car is filled up with water so you roll down the windows if you can. Then you open the door and swim out. Well, I thought, well, you can just or you could, swim out through the window. Yeah, or if you have one of those things. I know we used to sell them at the hardware I worked at where it's, like, this orange thing with a pick, like, a really like sharp Like a window point. breaker? Yeah, a window breaker. You just... Yeah, that would honestly be smart to have in the car. Just for, like, just for fun. <laughs> for no reason just for funsies no like real reason because i'm not going to put that in the universe for me but um anyway she's at the bottom of the river Lindsay's at the bottom of the river and she didn't get a chance to like make the decision of like do i want my windows open or not her windows are are open and she's at the bottom and her car is full of water 
I actually don't know if her windows were open at that point. They were at least cracked or something, but her car did fill up with water. Yeah. It's kind of unclear exactly what happened at the bottom of this river because the way she recalled it, she, first of all, doesn't know how she got out of it. And two, like, she was in a very insane state of mind. So I I don't have, like, the, like, step-by-step of, like, okay, I hit the bottom, then the water filled up, then I cracked the window. Like, I don't have that, We don't have an outline. I'm sure she doesn't either. No, she doesn't. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. But she said she does remember hitting the bottom of the river. That's terrible. So she thought to herself, what could she possibly do to get herself out of her car? She thought about how far away she was from anyone else, and she said that she knew she was the only one who could get her out of this situation. Because by the time any kind of rescue team would make it to her, she would be long gone. Her car was completely full of water, like I said, and she unbuckled her seatbelt and said she started to float, and all she could think to do was just push. But as she was pushing on every surface around her, her body started to gasp for air. She thought to herself with every gasp that she needed to come to terms with the fact that she was going to be one of the people who were found, and not one that made it out. So that's where she's at, mentally. And physically. Terrible. So, meanwhile, gonna leave you on a little cliffhanger there, Gary is as low as he possibly can be to the floor of his truck on the driver's side because he's worried that one of these cars will fall off of the bridge above him and on top of his car and then crush him. But after a moment, he gains the courage to get out of his car. When he got out, he looked back up and saw that the only car that hadn't fallen off the edge of the bridge was directly above his car. So he he was like, why didn't that one car fall? It's just so strange that it was like just the one above his car didn't fall. Wow. Yeah. Dispatchers were notified there was an an emergency, but they didn't really know the scope of what had happened. And they were just told that there was a bridge collapse, but they had no idea that it was the 35W Bridge, one of the most major roadways in in the city. So there was just a lot of confusion. But once word that it was the 35W Bridge had gotten around, paramedics and emergency services were all dispatched to the area. They knew that the bridge had collapsed and that there were cars in the water, but they didn't know how much of the bridge, they didn't know anything, really. They just heard that this was happening, knew it was a catastrophe, and they're like, okay, now we gotta get there. But there were some issues because they had to figure out how to get around the city now that this major connector to the other part was wiped out. And they didn't have any specific training on what to do in a bridge collapse situation, you know? Because you don't think, ah, yes, I can't trust this bridge. Yeah. You know? Wade Johnson, one of the paramedics, said when he heard on the radio that the 35W bridge had collapsed he immediately started to try and get to the north side of the bridge, which was the way that the dispatchers told him to go. So everyone was dispatched, I guess, to the north side of the bridge. However, at the last second before he'd had to turn left to get to the north side of the bridge, he decided to turn right and go to the south side of the bridge for whatever reason, which led them to being the only ambulance on the south side of the river. Really? Yeah. They didn't coordinate? I guess not. It was just kind of like a get there. And they were trying to coordinate like how to get through the city to get to the north side of the bridge. But he was the only one that went to the 
south side of the bridge and nobody even told him to he was he, he said just in his gut he was like i have to turn right and then this he did is so weird people's gut feelings just being right right i know jeff ringate who was one of the construction workers on the bridge had fallen with the bridge not in a car just by himself and he was knocked unconscious upon impact but when he woke up he was laying on a piece of the bridge that was half in the water and half out what had happened was the center portion of the bridge had fallen completely in the water so people and their cars were still on the bridge but now in the water and those who weren't so lucky were thrown from it so he woke up with his feet in the water but his top half still on solid ground and when he did gain consciousness again he saw his friend who he had just been standing with at the time having a conversation was now about 50 feet away from him in the water and being carried away by the current. So he just got extremely lucky, which is insane. And he saw a bunch of people who were in the water. He saw a bunch of people who were in the water, so he grabbed a broom that happened to be next to him in the rubble and used it to pull as many people out of the water as he could. Because they were doing construction, so I guess they had one of those, like, janitor brooms. I mean, super lucky. Yeah, so he used this big broom and, like, put the handle in the water to drag people out of the water and get them onto solid ground. So if we go back to Lindsay, who's at the bottom of the river, she said she had reached almost a sense of peace down there. She said she was pretty much floating and waiting to die, and she thought about all the things that people said death felt like. The white light, things like that. And she said she was pretty much just waiting for that to happen. But when she realized that she hadn't actually died yet, she started feeling around and realized that somehow she was outside of the confines of her car. And she started to kick toward the surface, hoping that she would make it. So this is the portion of her story that is like a little bit muddy. I don't know how she got out of her car and neither does she. Well, thank God she did. Right. So when she did make it to the surface, she immediately gasped for air and tried to fight the current. And Jeff Ringate, the construction worker, happened to be right where she surfaced with the broom and was able to pull her out of the water and onto the piece of fallen bridge that he was on. Jeff could tell that Lindsay was hurt pretty badly, but she just lay there grasping onto him, saying over and over, I don't know how I got out of my car. I don't know how I got out of my car because she was just in such shock that that's all she could say. Lindsay wasn't even entirely convinced that she was alive because it just seemed so surreal that she's like, am I dead? Like, what is happening? Right. There were sirens and smoke and cars on fire, rubble, people screaming. It was truly chaos. The collapse was all over the news. Loved ones of family members had to watch this all unfold on the news, knowing full well that their husband or wife or sibling or child etc., were probably on that bridge at that time because it was rush hour. Right. Something nobody was prepared for was the fact that there was a school bus full of children on the bridge at the time. It was a bus full of children going to a community center for an after-school program. And on this day, these kids were on their way back from a field trip from Bunker Beach, and they spent their afternoon swimming in a wave pool, and now they were on their way home. The school bus was just approaching the bridge on the south side as it collapsed, 
and it was stuck in the part of the collapse between a guardrail and a semi-truck that was on fire. Gary Babineau spotted this bus and knew that he needed to get the kids off of the bus because the way it was situated on the bridge, one, it was between this semi-truck that was on fire, and two, it looked as if it could fall off of the bridge at any moment. So he knew he needed to act fast, and there was about 40 kids on the bus. Seku Kane was one of the kids on the bus, and he was around 11 years old at the time. After the field trip, he had gotten onto the bus and fell asleep for the ride home with his head kind of against the window. But he was obviously abruptly woken up when the bridge collapsed. And he was woken up to people around him screaming and everyone freaking out. He said he remembers seeing some of the little kids had blood on their faces and some of the adults had blood coming out of their mouths. Kids had broken arms and ankles. It was a disaster. And when he looked out the window, he saw gigantic cracks in the concrete below the bus and there were cars all around. Some were completely sideways. Others were tilted straight down. Some were tilted straight up. It was the entire thing was collapsed. You know, that's what we're talking about. So... One of the staff members ran to the back of the bus and kicked the back door and kicked it three or four times before he got it open. Immediately, he started loading the older kids off of the bus first. That way they could help get the smaller kids off of the bus after them. And they were all told to stay really close and help each other. So Gary climbed up onto that portion of the bridge and started helping unload kids from the bus. And most of the kids, from what Gary said, were just in complete shock. As kids were still being loaded off, Gary climbed down off the side of the bridge and directed them to come to the edge and basically fall off toward him. And he'd catch them and then they could, you know, run off on the land kind of thing. And he had to reach up about five or six feet up in the air to catch these kids one by one. I'm like confused about the situation. Like, they're on... They didn't fall with the bridge. No. So, the portion of the bridge that they were on was, like, not a portion that actively crumbled to the ground, but, like, had a piece of the bridge break off from it. So, it was all cracked and very unstable, and there was a semi-truck that was on the bridge, on the edge of the bridge that was on fire, and they were slightly off of the edge, and still up in the air, but not, like, completely fallen. So it's like cracked, like the semis above them, they're pinned and they have to jump some distance down to another cracked part of the bridge. Pretty much, yeah. And Gary had climbed down from the higher portion of where the bus was to the lower portion where he then had to catch kids one by one as they jumped off of the bridge because they needed to get away from the semi-truck that was on fire and also they needed to get off of this clearly very unstable portion of cracked bridge word word okay glad we're on the same page by that time there were plenty of sirens and he knew that people were coming to help them but at this point it was pretty much just anyone who could help was helping but the rescue teams really didn't have enough people to help one and two they were in the wrong place going to the north side of the bridge i mean there were still people that needed help on the north side of the bridge but the south side may have been worse you know and they only had the one ambulance with two paramedics on it so they just needed more assistance but the public were really what saved so many people 
Bystanders who had seen the bridge collapse, construction workers, students and staff from the nearby University of Minnesota building, staff from the nearby Red Cross building, or people who hadn't been seriously injured in the bridge collapse, gathered together to get as many people off of the bridge or out of the water as possible and just help each other in general. Not only did people help directly at the bridge, but people who weren't at the site of the emergency went to the Red Cross nearby to give blood. Wow. I wouldn't even think to do that. That's really smart, though. I know. I mean, there's going to be probably a lot of transfusions that you need. Right. During the first few minutes after the collapse, which are, you know, very crucial, obviously, the emergency people weren't anywhere where they could really help. Thankfully, Gary and the adults on board the bus were able to get all of the kids off of the bus and away from the bridge. The police, firefighters, and paramedics did make it where they needed to be fairly quickly, but at first it was just it was just whoever was there helping in any way they could. Lindsay Walls was still sitting on the part of the collapsed bridge that was in the water, and a woman in scrubs who had also fallen in the collapse came over to help Lindsay, who was clearly injured and still very much in shock. She couldn't believe that both the southbound and the northbound sides of the bridge were just in the water. And people were standing next to their cars on their cell phones, clearly in distress, just not knowing what the hell they could even do. Yeah, I mean, what do you do? Right. Just how do you even wrap your head around, like, how could this happen? And this woman in scrubs called for someone to throw them a towel and a water bottle, and she cleaned up Lindsay and let her use her phone to call her fiancé. Wade Johnson, the only paramedic that pulled up to the south side with his partner, had people coming up to him left and right, as I'm sure you could imagine. A man carried up a woman who said he believed her back was broken. A man came up clutching his chest with a serious injury. A man came up carrying one of the kids from the bus that had been injured really badly. All of them needed to be transported to a trauma unit, but they only had the one ambulance. Wade looked at his partner to see if there were any other ambulances coming to help them, but he shook his head no. So this was all on them. And it obviously didn't stop there. They had so many injured people coming up needing immediate assistance. So they called for more ambulances. But just then, a Minnesota State Patrol car came up with another ambulance from a completely separate area in Minnesota. So ambulances from outside of Minneapolis are now coming to help with this emergency. They were told to transport as many people as they could to the Red Cross Center near the bridge that had a triage tent set up in the parking lot and then to immediately come back again. So Wade, this paramedic, had to basically give them verbal directions of like how to get to the Red Cross Center now that there was no bridge and like there's definitely going to be blockages set up and things like that. And then he's like, get there and get back as many times as you can. Right. I mean, are these, this is the ambulances or just regular people? No, this was the ambulance. Well, this part, this time it's the ambulance coming from another area in Minnesota, but actually there are people who are transporting people to the hospital in like trucks and stuff that emergency people are using. They're like, Hey, can we use your pickup truck to transport people to the hospital? So that was happening as well. Each week, I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. 
have all chosen to share their stories with one aim, that if people can relate and get comfort from it, if it can help someone. As one of my guests said, there's so much going on in the world. We should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better. Each one is a superhero, not because they have special powers, it's because in spite of what they've gone through, they keep on going. I find them remarkable. Please listen to Chatholic and hear their stories. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, the, uh, I'm just so glad that they didn't have to, like, choose who was going to have to go. Right. That would have been... Impossible. Yeah. There were hundreds of people on rescue teams from fire to paramedics to rescue teams in water, in the water, swimming, trying to get people out of cars, rescue boats, and all of them worked together to get as many people to safety as possible. And they actually worked really well together. Like, people were just making it happen. There were about 50 people who were taken by ambulance to local hospitals and another 25 who were taken by private vehicles, like I said, some in pickup trucks that paramedics were helping load people into the back, like into the bed on backboards. Do you know what that is, like a backboard? So it's like the board that you put someone on for like an ambulance and you like slide them into the back of the truck. Does that make sense? Wow. So they were on backboards, but like going into the bed of a pickup truck. (laughs) What a scene. Yeah. They're just loading up people. Yes. One of the people who was slid into the back of a pickup truck on a backboard was Lindsay Walls. She was so terrified to move because she was scared something would paralyze her. She just didn't know what her injuries were and she didn't want to move. And when she was slid onto the truck, there was already another woman in the back with her on a backboard as well. And she said, hi, how are you? Can I hold your hand? (laughs) And so these two women held hands all the way to the hospital in the bed of this pickup truck. Which is such a scary and like sad scene, but also like weirdly comforting. Yeah, I know. My reaction was going to be that's like wholesome. No, it is. But like, yeah, at the same time sad because it's like you can't even imagine the fear the circumstances yeah right that these women were feeling and i'm sure they had loved ones and other like it's, it's just there's so much going on it's just absolute chaos wade johnson the paramedic at that point was back up on the bridge trying to look through cars to see if anyone was stuck inside and as he stood right by the school bus actually and the burning semi-truck, he remembers for the first time taking a look out on the scene in front of him and thinking about how actually terrifying the situation was. And after a moment of standing there, the bridge shuddered and almost moaned. Wade said he describes that moment as the bridge dying. And it was terrifying because it just felt like it shook and it moaned. And then he was like, this is really bad. I'm going to get off. (laughs) Wow. I mean, it sounds similar to the cruise ship that sank. Yeah. That we just covered. And also. They also described it as like. The ship dying. The ship was dying. Mm -hmm. And this also reminded me of episode 66, which is when that woman got into a car accident with a semi truck and her car was hanging off the side of the bridge right very that yeah you know i thought of that too it's loud but it also has to be like just this low groan too yeah i'm thinking of it's just like really unnerving and 
the sound of the bridge actually collapsing like this the sound of the the metal beams snapping must have been so terrifying mm-hmm. because i was in a car accident and I, I remember the sound of the metal of my door crunching and it took a while for that to like get out of my brain you know yeah it's a sound you don't forget yeah no because as soon as you hear that sound you're just screwed right there's nothing you could do exactly so in the hours following the collapse was the mad dash of family members to these local hospitals to try and find their loved ones Throughout this entire ordeal, Nicole Olson was at home with her infant son waiting for her husband, Karge, to come home from work. That afternoon, after getting a weird gut feeling, again, she decided she needed to put on the news and saw the first bit of coverage from the bridge collapse and knew that her husband was on the bridge at that time. However, as she watched the news in absolute horror, she had seen her husband among the people on the bridge, and at least she knew that he was alive. But after seeing him, she had no idea where he had ended up, how bad his injuries were, or anything. That was until around midnight that night, and this bridge collapse happened at 6 p.m. So until it took until midnight for her to get any news about where her husband was. She received a call from her father saying that he knew where Karge had been taken, but to prepare herself for his injuries. When she made it to the hospital, she saw that he was in a complete neck brace that went all the way down past his chest. When he saw her, he was really happy and he asked her what had happened. But as soon as there was a break in their conversation, he looked away. And when he looked back, at her it was as if he were seeing her for the first time and again he greeted her and said babe oh my god i'm so glad you're here what happened why am i in the hospital for the second time so this was very clearly a traumatic brain injury and their family was not sure what the extent was if it was permanent or if it was not you know god that's so that's horrifying yeah I don't even want to think about that, you know? Karge had been extremely lucky to get out of the situation he was in alive. He had driven on that bridge twice a day for years, and usually he would have been on his way home around 5 p.m., so he would have missed the collapse by an hour if he was on his normal schedule. But this day, his schedule was a little different, and he had to stop into another office for something on his way home. During the collapse, his car did a 70-foot nosedive. The roof had collapsed in, the engine block had come through the windshield, the windows were completely blown out, and the car was completely crumpled and crushed. The only part of the car that didn't get completely collapsed in on was right above his head. Oh my god. So that really reminded me of that woman's car crash off of the side of the bridge because her car being crumpled the way it was reminded me of this one. Yeah, it was just a pancake. Mm -hmm. You can't even imagine that cars can go that flat. Right. You know, I guess unless you have seen a junkyard. Yeah. It was was like, you know, foot tall. Yeah. It was shorter than a wheel. Right, exactly. And that's kind of how his car was as well. How lucky. Everywhere except your head. Yeah. Well, I mean, he still had a very serious brain injury, but it didn't kill him is my point. 
So this left him with a very serious brain injury. His brain was swelling and he couldn't remember what had happened or hold a memory. And his family was extremely scared that this would be permanent. After recovering, he still has no memory of the collapse, how he got out of his car, or how he got to the hospital, but somehow he made it there. For six hours after the collapse, he was completely unaccounted for, but somehow he made it to the hospital. On his own? I guess. I don't know. He doesn't know. I mean, of course he doesn't know, but I mean, if he actually just, he probably didn't. Somebody probably had to have helped him. Six hours? But if he made it on his own... Think about how long six hours is. It's a long time. Yeah. During the time in the hospital, Nicole had seen a Star Tribune newspaper covering the collapse on the front page. And very much like the other episode, episode 66, she saw her husband's car among the wreckage and couldn't believe he was still alive with what it looked like. In the seven years after the collapse, Karj Olsen had 16 surgeries, and there was a span of time where he was averaging one surgery every two and a half months. Wow. So he went through a lot. But back to the wreckage. What was a rescue mission at this point turned into a recovery mission. There were approximately 190 people on the bridge at the time of the collapse, and unfortunately, 13 people did pass away. 145 people received serious or minor injuries, and there were over 30 people who had unknown injuries or didn't get hurt at all, which is astounding. But now people wanted to know what actually went wrong with this bridge to make it collapse. Who did construction not up to code or like yeah, who just completely up? ignored the problem? Right. So the bridge was built in the 60s. So... Why now did it collapse? So when it was designed, the gusset plates that were used were thinner than they were supposed to be. And gusset plates are the riveted steel plates that attach two or more bridge elements and are commonly used as connections in steel truss bridges, which this bridge was. So it's basically like a big steel plate that holds the pieces together. Okay. Okay. So they were about half as thick as they should have been. Half? Yeah. It's not known why they were built in such a bitch-ass way, but there were <laughs> there was a mistake made at some point. They don't know if it was a design mistake or a construction mistake, but there was construction happening on the bridge at the time of the collapse, and they think that the stockpile of materials contributed to the collapse. So it was the combination of the stockpiled materials and the russet plates that were too thin, and there was some kind of mistake somewhere in the middle there where the overload of materials and weight on the bridge was too much and it collapsed. Wow. I mean, is it, when did this happen? What year? 2007. It's insane that it lasted, what, 50 years? This is the 50th anniversary. Right. Right? Math. And all that time with half as thick? Mm-hmm. But finding out the exact cause was really difficult because when they took the pieces of the bridge out of the water or out of the wreckage, they needed to make them smaller to, you know, actually remove them, which further deformed the pieces. So it was hard to pinpoint what was deformation from bad design or if it was just from extraction. Right. The construction worker, Jeff Ringate, said he was mad they were even on the bridge that day. They shouldn't have been there, and because of some kind of construction or design flaw, 
His friend was killed and many of his co-workers can't work again because of their injuries. A few days after the collapse, Gary Babineau got a call from the president, which was George Bush at the time, who told him that he wanted to meet at the site of the bridge. And the two talked for around 20 minutes right in front of the bus that was actually still there. And he was thanked by the president who told him that he was a hero for the way that he helped those kids. And he said he doesn't feel like a hero. He just feels like he did the right thing. There were so many people on the bridge that day that helped in any way they could, and they were all heroes too. Wade Johnson, the paramedic, said no one puts on his uniform to be a hero. It's just his job, and he'd do it again. Period. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, he was just so humble the way he said it. He's like, this is just it's my job. part of the job. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah I'm doing my job. People. Yeah, he's like, I'm doing my job the way you do your job. It's just what I do. Yeah. And I was like, damn. Yeah, I can't believe that paramedics just deal with what they deal with on a regular basis. This is just a regular day. Yeah. Seeing all of this horrific stuff that yeah. they need to. And especially this scene. Mm-hmm. You have kids that are injured. Like, injured. People are just, you know, losing their minds. Yeah. And wanting you to help them. And, you, you know, you're looking around and you're the only ambulance. How do you... I just don't understand how these people process and, like, live normal lives. Well, not only process and live normal lives. Go back and do it again and just, it's their job. Yeah. But also, how do they process and continue working diligently in a situation of extreme stress and emergency? Yeah. Ice in the veins. No, seriously. I was watching a video. Probably lots of therapy. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that has to be. I was watching a video on someone who tried to be a 911 operator for a day like it wasn't they weren't actually doing it but they're like what does it take to be a 911 operator and they went through the whole process of it and like the test you have to take for it and then they did a practice call where like an actor was calling in to 911 and like reporting on it and it was so insanely intense and this is their job they go there every day and answer people's distress calls you only call 911 on your worst day Right. So you're like, they're literally dealing with people's worst days every single day. I mean, this job is horror, but what could be more meaningful though, yeah, right? Definitely. I mean, you're just saving people's lives every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Arguably one of the most important jobs out there, you know? True. Many of the survivors struggled with PTSD or survivor's guilt after the collapse. And Lindsay said this experience was so unique because they were all strangers to each other. And if it happened only a few seconds before or a few seconds after, it would have been a completely different group of people. Right. That's so weird to think about. When when she said that, I was like, oh my God, that's so true. Like two minutes later, and it would have been a completely different set of people who were just like on the bridge too, you know? Yeah, just chance, pure chance. God, that's insane. For weeks after, people didn't use any bridge in the area. And, and I can't I, blame them. And I don't blame them. <laughs> right. We need to do a full audit. Seriously. In the immediate aftermath of the 35W bridge collapse, the Minnesota Department of Transportation came under intense scrutiny. The interstate highway bridge had been classified as structurally deficient, meaning it was aging and in need of repair. Immediately, the old bridge was taken away and construction of a new bridge was started to go in its place. And Jeff Ringate was actually... And Jeff Ringate personally worked on this new bridge 24-7 until it was done. 
and a little more than a year after the bridge collapsed, a new one was in its place. The first time people crossed this new bridge, everyone held their breath. Yeah, I was going to say, who's the first one to cross this bridge? It better be the people who built it. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. The state now gets outside independent peer reviews of bridge design plans, and it's revamped its bridge maintenance worker training program. A quote is, certainly we've done a lot to ensure the safety of bridges so it doesn't happen again, so I feel confident about the advancements we've made in bridge design, construction, inspection, maintenance, and that all works toward good bridge safety. So, hoping for the best. But according to the American Society of Civil Engineers, 12% of the nation's bridges were rated as structurally deficient in 2007, but only 9% are in that category today. Doesn't that make you feel good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only 9%. Still, American Road and Transportation Builders Association estimates it would take more than three decades to repair or replace all of those 55,000 bridges that need it. It's a challenge that will no doubt grow as structures age and federal interest continues to lag. A recent estimate for the nation's backlog of bridge repairs is $125 billion. We need to increase spending on bridge rehabilitation from $14.4 billion annually to $22.7 billion annually, or by 58%, if we are to improve the condition. At the current rate of investment, it will take until 2071 to make all the repairs that are currently necessary. Yeah, well, that's not confidence-inspiring, No, not entirely. It would seem if there is anything to spend money on. It might be bridges. It might be one of these. Yeah, infrastructure might be a little important. But yeah, that's a little spooky, in my opinion. But apparently, these bridges that are deficient are not dangerous to be on, apparently. However, this story proves that they might be. So I don't know that I trust. Right. You know? Well, I guess what do they mean structurally deficient? It's probably a, a, a scale, you know? Yeah, like... Like, what's the like, worst? Like, you pass, right. but you get a C-. minus. You pass, but let's not do construction on the bridge and also have rush hour and also have it be 90 degrees that day and also... Oh, isn't it crazy, though, that they had two lanes of closed traffic? On both sides. On both sides. So, so they were only... They only had half of the traffic. They yeah, only but had was... half of the cars. Well, right. That's, that's spooky, but they did so... have a lot of construction, like materials on the bridge that added like millions of pounds to the bridge but i'm just saying it's crazy that it only collapsed under half traffic right anyway fingers crossed <laughs> but for life for carge and nicole olsen has been great since his recovery at the time of their interview which was seven years after the collapse they had celebrated their nine-year anniversary their son was doing well and they're great. He has his memory back. The only thing he doesn't remember is the collapse itself. And honestly? So that's fine. Probably a good thing. Yeah, I'm not mad at that. And everyone on the school bus also survived. And according to Seiku Kane, everyone is doing well. The accident took away some of their childhood, but they were also able to overcome this huge thing. So there's a plus in that, I suppose. They're still alive. They're alive. Lindsay Walls founded and owned her own nonprofit called Courageous Hearts, which was a youth center, which sadly did close in September of 2020 because of the pandemic, but I'm sure she's going to do some great things real soon. 
Gary Babineau has three kids now with his wife and their life is pretty sweet. The baby his wife was pregnant with at the time of the collapse was a boy and he is now the oldest of their three kids. Aww. Yeah. But life moved on for these people. It, it was just an insane thing that they all experienced and it showed them their mortality, but also that they can overcome something so terrible. And that is the story of the 35W bridge collapse. Yeah, certainly would give you some perspective Yeah. after surviving that. Right. And these types of stories are so horrific, but also so inspiring, too, because of just the way people react. Yeah, how resilient people are. Yeah, and everyone just jumps in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, when there's some kind of situation similar to this. Yeah, this kind of story gives me faith in humanity right. in a different way right. from the shit people that didn't even call the didn't even call 911 for um Kendra Beebe last episode. Right. You know? It's just it is so interesting. It's insane. The contrast. Yeah. Big but big contrast in people in, maybe the, in it's these two just stories. Minneapolis. Maybe, maybe the people there are just sweet. Hey. Shout out the Midwest. Let's all move to Minnesota. <laughs> maybe not. Too cold. Maybe not. Too cold. Um, hey, Minnesota, you're great. Love you. Kisses. <laughs> Say it back. Um, anyway, what's your yeah. good thing? Uh, you swallowed a fly. Okay. So my not good thing today. <laughs> my shit thing is I swallowed a fly. Should we do a shit and a, bad, <laughs> shit and a good thing? Yeah, my bad. I was rollerblading today uh, trying to get a little exercise. And I swallowed a fly hole or some kind of bug. I didn't see what it was, That's but it was so like, gross. it didn't even touch anything <laughs> until it hit my lung or my stomach, you know, Not the lungs. just straight in. And, you're like, and yeah, no, I always assumed that this was only something that happened in a movie. Oh, I've swallowed a fly and I've, it's traumatic. This is my first fly swallow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, right down. That was nope. not good. Uh, my good thing is that I have Friday off. Yes, we love Friday off. So we love a day off. And now we get to hang with our friend Robbie who's coming. Shout yeah, out Robbie. Yep. Um, that's amazing. My good thing is that I got a pretty sweet Keith Harrington jacket yesterday. And I'm pretty hype about it. Right. Yeah, it does look really cool. Hell and yeah. There was a there was a size discrepancy decision that we had to... It's very unimportant the gone about it was in the men's section the only thing that they had available was a small and a large the small fit me but it wasn't the oversized look i was going for i wanted a medium they only had a large i got the large we're all happy i got a sick new jacket and it looks good and it looks good baby hell yeah anyway thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast if you would like to hear exclusive bonus content check out our patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast send us your stories to know today podcast at gmail.com we have a tiktok that is not today podcast and a twitter that is not today podcast but the t on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense because it makes sense and just keep breathing yeah yeah